journey of faith here. What God is doing in this passage is He's leading us to the next man on the docket of who is going to be used by the Lord, who is going to walk and live by faith. We just kind of got done with one. His name was Noah. Now we're coming up to Abram. And it's going to be through Abram that is going to have the Abrahamic covenant which will establish the people Israel. It is going to offer to them from God's own goodness and grace a land, seed, and blessing. And it will be an unconditional covenant which is still in effect today. God has not thrown away Israel. God is not done with Israel. God is still working uh, to ultimately bring about Israel's redemption. Uh, but until that day, he works through his church to proclaim the gospel uh, to all who will uh, hear it and to all that uh, all may repent and believe the gospel. And what we're going to look at tonight is the, the sort of family tree and lineage that's going to bring about Abram and the importance of this. As we talked about already with chapter 4 and 5 and chapter 10, the lineages matter, right? I remember dealing with chapter 10 and I had several folks who said, I didn't know that these, these names even meant anything, let alone mattered to the, to the grand scheme of things. And what we find is that this passage is going to matter incredibly, even though it's a list of names. So with, uh, without further ado, let's jump into these names, all right? These are the generations of Shem. Shem was 100 years old and begat uh, Arphaxad two years after the flood. And Shem lived after he begat Arxaphod uh, 500 years and begat sons and daughters. And Arphaxad lived 530 years and begat Salah. And Arphaxad lived... After he begat Salah 403 years and begat sons and daughters, and Salah lived 30 years and begat Eber, and Salah lived after he begat Eber 403 years and begat sons and daughters. Uh, now notice, let me pause for a moment. Notice where you see and begat sons and daughters. You know what that means? They had sons and daughters. More than what is just mentioned. So who is being mentioned here is we're going to see in your notes and everything is that the ones that are being mentioned are in the specific lineage of Jesus Christ. You will find every one of them there uh, mentioned in Matthew and Luke and the genealogies of Christ, and you will see them verbatim. And so this is important for us uh, to see that ultimately this line is going to lead to the promised seed. We'll get into that in a little while. But notice, these are, once more with this lineage, these are not the only people. This is not the church directory, right? This is not the phone book. There is a whole lot more going on here. The sons and daughters, remember, they are repopulating the world. And so, yes, just as with Genesis chapter, uh, chapter 4 and 5, is that there are brothers, sisters, half-brothers, half-sisters, and cousins that are intermarrying and repopulating the world. Uh, they are staying close together in their family units and things. Times were a lot different then. It is not safe uh, um, biologically to do that sort of thing, that the close relations in that way. And so what we find is that during this time, we have to remember that they were that we are a whole lot farther removed away from the fall than they were. They were a whole lot closer to perfection than what you and I have ever been in this world. And so uh, biologically, they were uh, much different yet similar to us. And nevertheless, as we look in this, we find that there are many sons, many daughters. How many sons and how many daughters? It does not say, it just simply says that there's a multitude because the earth's population is making a comeback here after the flood. It goes on in verse number 16, And Eber lived 430 years and begat Peleg. And Eber lived after he begat Peleg 430 years, and he begat sons and daughters. And Peleg lived 30 years and begat Reu. And Peleg lived after he begat Reu 209 years and begat sons and daughters. And Reu lived two and thirty years and begat Surig. And Reu lived after he begat Surig 207 years and begat sons and daughters. And Surig lived 30 years and begat Nahor. And Surig lived after he begat Nahor 200 years and he begat sons and daughters. Notice, the slow decline of the ages as well, right? 
Now, as we move forward, he keeps, he keeps going. And Nahor, uh, let's see. And Sarek lived after he begat Nahor 200 years and begat sons and daughters. And Nahor lived 900, uh, excuse me, 9 and 20 years and begat Terah. And Nahor lived after he begat Terah 119 years and begat sons and daughters. And Terah lived 70 years and begat Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah begat Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Uh, and Haran, or Haran, begat Lot, and Haran died before his father Terah in the land of his nativity in Ur of the Chaldees. And Abram and Nahor took them wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife Milcah, the daughter of Haran, uh, the father of Milcah, and the father of Iscah. But Sarai was barren. She had no child. Uh, what's interesting about that, we won't get into it tonight, is that the word barren tells us all that we need to know. But then he clarifies by doubling down on it and going, she had no child. There, there is no seed. Now, the whole focus of the passage is lineage, isn't it? And here we get to Abram, who, as you and I already know, because we've read chapter 12 already, we've read, we've read the rest of the Bible, we know that it's going to be through Abraham that this promised seed is going to come through. And yet we find that his wife is barren and without child. And the idea is going to be that she can't have children and she's uh, uh, unable, right? At least from their perspective at this point. Now, that is going to be critical and important for later down the road. It says, And Terah took Abram his son, and Lot the son of Haran, his son's son, and Sarah his daughter-in-law, his son uh, Abram's wife, and they went forth with them from Ur of the Chaldees to go into the land of Canaan, and they came into Haran and dwelt there. And the days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now, as we get into this tonight, what we're going to look at as we break down verse 10 through 26, Abram's family tree, then the Verses uh, 27 down through 32 is going to be dealing with Abram's sort of family branch, the immediate family members, his father, uh, his nephew, his wife, himself. Uh, but what we're going to look at now is that the focus of Revelation now moves on from the world in its wickedness to draw attention back to God's providential dealings to bring about redemption through the promised seed, both physically and spiritually. Now, we're sort of looking at this as a funnel, right? Uh, when you pour something into your car that you're supposed to, that is, right? You normally use a funnel, right? It starts off wide and then turns into a little tube, right? So here's the idea that I want you to sort of picture is that we're starting off broad and then we're narrowing it down to get to the, the specific details of what matters most. Now, all of it matters because all Scripture is profitable. Don't get me wrong there. But this matters so much more in the plan of God's redemptive history. Now, chapter 10 is this broad section that deals with all of the lineages that called the table of nations, the 70 different descendants that are mentioned, dealing with the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Then we find the continuation of Shem here. Uh, but chapter 11 deals with the narrowing down by looking at the result of the wicked gene genealogy and the wicked generations at the establishment of Babel in the Babylonian Empire, the people that, that practice that spiritual wickedness and idolatry and immorality in all manners uh, of their life. Now we get furthermore into this chapter, and at the end of the chapter, it narrows down to the very bottom where we're going to be introduced to the main character for, and his descendants, really, which makes him much of the main character, for, for the next rest of the, the, the book of Genesis, right? But especially the next quarter of it is going to be dealing specifically with Abram and uh, his life and how God is going to uh, use him, and he's going to be a man of faith and all these things. Now we're going to find that he's not going to be without sin. As a matter of fact, he's going to be with plenty of sin. Now, this is why you and I can uh, relate and identify to him, but ultimately this is why he needed a Savior. This is why he trusted in the Lord. He was saved the same way you and I are saved, by grace through faith. And the Bible says later on in, in the book of Romans that it was uh, accounted unto him for righteousness. It is imputed righteousness that Abram will receive later down the road. But before we get there, 
We need to look at these generations. We need to look and see what God is doing here in the broad and bringing things down. Sorensen writes, The lineage of Genesis 11 tracks Shem's descendants to Abram in chapter 12, verse 1. Only those in the direct lineage of Jesus Christ are noted. The Scripture thus narrows its focus of human history to the ancestors of our Lord. It zooms in and then follows the life and descendants of Abraham in chapter 12 and following. Now we can notice that this is what is taking place and already foretold back in Genesis chapter 9, verse number 26. Remember, uh, Noah had awoke from his wine back in verse 24 and knew what his younger son had done unto him. And he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brethren. And he said, Blessed be the Lord God of Shem, and Canaan shall be a servant. God shall enlarge Japheth, and he shall dwell in the tents of Shem, and Canaan shall be a servant. And Noah lived after the flood 350 years, and all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. Here's what we find. Shem is going to be the promised one that through his lineage ultimately is going to come the Messiah. It is through the lineage of Shem that makes the Semites or uh, those who are going to be the people of Israel, the Jewish people. Now, uh, why is this important? It was foretold by this prophecy that Noah gives by God's own hand and doing uh, that curses the one that had sinned against. But then specifically as well, it uplifts Shem as one who had been obedient and had done right and had called upon the Lord is what it is implying. And then now we're beginning to see this fruit. Now we're seeing that descendancy uh, come down to show and ultimately lead to what God is doing on the grander scale, ultimately to bring about the redemption that he promised there in the Garden of Eden. So the cross was never plan B. The cross was always plan A. Jesus was not a last resort. He is the only resort. And so what we find is that all of these promises of God are being worked out. And God is now revealing to us through these genealogies, now here, in, here in chapter 11, to get us down to show the detail of which God cares, not merely just about His Word and, and revealing Himself and revealing His will, but as well the detail that God cares about redeeming lost souls. God cares greatly, and His hand is involved in all of human history. He is not just merely some God who has wound up the clock and let it go and let it run on its own, or wound up human history and let it run and see how it all shakes out. He cares deeply, and He is moving things to His will. Now, Scroggy writes, And so, for the long period which Genesis represents, only ten men constitute the line of revelation and redemption. Now, we're going to notice that revelation and redemption throughout this booklet. Those are going to be two key words for us to understand here. Revelation would be this. It is God's revealing by His grace to specific people. Remember, Abram isn't walking around with a King James Bible. Noah did not have one either. They did not have a Bible. Matter of fact, they were in the middle of of what the Bible was going to be about, right? We find that when God spoke to them, He spoke to them as Hebrews chapter 1 uh, verse 1 tells us that he spoke to them in diverse manners and at times past. Things were different, but now he has spoken to us strictly and specifically through Jesus Christ and his word. Uh, the, the living word, the incarnate word, and the inspired word. Now, as Scroggy continues, he says, uh, only these ten men constitute the line of revelation and then redemption. What is redemption? It is to be bought back off the slave market. It is that idea of being redeemed, saved. Uh, leading us to the ideas of, uh, and doctrines of, of being reconciled to God. It is ultimately the root of our salvation. Now, what we're going to find is that later on in the Bible is that there are two different words that are used, and, and unfortunately, they're often used synonymously. I don't believe that they should be, and I believe it leads to a, a great misunderstanding about salvation. 
We're going to hear later on the word atonement in the Old Testament. Specifically, we're going to get into Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's going to deal with atonement, specifically the day of atonement. What did the word atonement mean? The word atonement meant a covering, right? Now, we'd already seen a covering when? Genesis chapter 3. What did God do? He shed innocent blood and covered them. That was atonement, right? Uh, it, it appeases, but for a time. But then there's a difference between atonement and redemption. What is redemption? Redemption is a positional act with a lasting, eternal, everlasting impact, right? There's a reason why they had a day of atonement once every year. It's because every year the nation of Israel had to go back and to make sure that their sins as a nation were covered. Now, what do we know? Ultimately, they never truly were in the sense because they, Christ had not come and died as the perfect lamb yet. So they were awaiting and everything that they were doing there in the tabernacle and then later on in the temple was pointing to what Jesus Christ would do as the perfect spotless sinless lamb. Now, redemption is an act of real salvation. This is the salvific act. This is being born again, if you will. This is having a righteousness imputed to our account, uh, which gives us a new position. It gives us a new destination. It is uh, being, uh, being saved. It is what you and I would consider salvation. So we find that revelation and redemption are going to be incredibly key for us and in this passage, understanding the theme uh, throughout the rest of Genesis as well. So we found that thus far, revelation and redemption have been offered, spoken to, given to Adam, Abel, Seth, Enoch, right? Remember, Enoch so far is the only one that only fell that didn't die, right? He, he was translated out of there, right? He walked with God and God took him, right? A picture of what's going to happen to the church. Uh, furthermore, uh, then we see Noah, Shem, Abram, then who? Isaac, Jacob, and Judah. And of these, Christ came the Redeemer of mankind. Now, uh, this helps us to understand what God is doing. This does not mean that God is not working amongst other people, but rather, He is using these specific men to do His work for the rest of the people. And so these are going to be God's men. These are going to be God's men set apart by God, called by God, saved by God, empowered by God to do the work and the will of God and ultimately to spread the Word of God as they are going to be acting as prophets and priests and kings to some degree. And they are going to be ultimately bringing about through their lineage both physically and spiritually the coming Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, the promised Lamb, the promised Seed. So although there will be many sons and daughters had by all the aforementioned men, these are the ones that the direct physical lineage of Jesus Christ will come through. This is why uh, the Lord here points this out for us. You go back, go read Matthew and Luke, and you're going to find the genealogies of Christ. And you know what you're going to find? You're going to find Genesis 11. And that's going to be important. Why? Because this shows us that the Word of God is to be trusted. It is true that ultimately Jesus Christ was a literal man, but He was literally God, and He literally died, and He literally rose again, that we can trust this Bible from cover to cover. If we couldn't trust one portion of it, we couldn't trust any of it, right? Think about it this way. If we had a bowl of M&Ms up front, and we had a thousand M&Ms in there, which is plenty for everybody in here tonight, right? And, and, but yet, out of, out of those thousand M&Ms, 50 of them, are poison. The moment you eat one of them, you'll die. You're going to take that risk? Some of you like chocolate enough to maybe give it a sniff, right? Maybe give it a lick first, see what it does. But, but here's the idea is that we, we see that, that it is, is much bigger than what we realize, right? And so we find that this is a, a huge issue. If we couldn't trust 50 out of that thousand, well, why would we even reach our hand into the bowl? 
because we can trust every word of this book, we should do more than reach our hand to the bowl of it. We should, we should be feasting upon the word, trusting the word, living by the word. Now, ultimately, God's purpose in his revelation is the redemption of all who will trust in him by faith, such as these men mentioned above. Here's the only way that you and I know about how to be redeemed is because God reveals it. The only reason why anyone has ever been redeemed by God is because God has revealed it and we have received it by grace through faith. That's it. So those are sort of three main words that you want to understand and mark down when we understand God's redemptive plan of history. All of human history is this. God's revelation, God's redemption of man, and man's response to God's revelation and redemption, right? And so as we've talked about here a lot throughout the year, God's grace reveals, faith responds. And this is the same understanding here. Now, uh, now these are not the only saved folks on the earth, but these have received specific revelation by grace and have responded by faith. And ultimately, we see God working through them uh, to build His kingdom, to build ultimately His word and uh, fulfill His promises. As we press on, here's what we need to look at and see. Uh, Salhammer writes and talks about this sort of variation and this uh, contrast between the two different seeds that we have seen thus far uh, in the Scripture. Now, um, what we find is that as Salhammer writes, the line of Cain may rise up against the seed of the woman, but God provides another seed in place of the one who was slain. The line of Cain may lead to the judgment of the flood, but God preserves the line of Seth through which the promised seed will come. The same kind of theological reflection on the divine promise in chapter 3, verse 15, lies behind the list of ten names in chapter 11, verse 10 through 26. Here, too, the author's aim is to show that God's promise concerning the seed of the woman cannot be thwarted by the confusion and scattering of the nations at Babylon. Though the family of Noah was scattered at Babylon, God preserved a line of ten men that carried the seed from Noah to Abraham. So, Sehemah writes all that to say this. Nothing can thwart the plan of God. The devil's work can't do it. Man's rebellion can't do it. As a matter of fact, what we find is that every time that the devil goes and accomplishes something, God uses, the, God uses it to accomplish his own good out of it. We find that every time that man rebels, God is still yet able, uh, because of his grace, because of his compassion and his love, to yet still offer grace, to yet still continue this plan of redemption, this redeeming story. In Genesis, what we find is that what we would call this is God's grace. In Genesis, grace is seen after sin and judgment. So think of it this way. If there was no sin, if there was no fall, you and I would never know that God is gracious, merciful, loving, forgiving, compassionate, right? And so because there was a fall, because there was sin, not just in Adam's life and and his descendants, but in our life, That is how we know and we experience uh, all that God is through His grace, His mercy, His love, His forgiveness, His uh, patience, and all these different things that we can name. And so we find that from the very first sin in the garden, what do we see? Grace. After sin. Grace in the judgment that was given. You say, how is there grace in the judgment that was given? Uh, The woman is going to be miserable. The man is going to have to work from the sweat of his brow and all these things. They should have been in hell. That would have been justice. That would have been righteous, but God is gracious. He judges them. And as uh, later on, we see throughout the Bible that the Bible sort of asks the question, does God do anything unrighteously? Does God make poor decisions? Does God make 
uh, decisions uh, going off of uh, only partial information. No, he makes every decision perfectly, completely, and with a righteous judgment. Ultimately, it is a righteous judgment because he is seeking the revelation of his will towards man and that they would respond to that revealing and that they would be redeemed by grace through faith. This is God's plan ultimately for all. Now, as we look here, Salehammer brings up this idea of the seed and this promised seed. And we find that ultimately when we see lineages like this, here's what I want you to understand. We're thinking about the seed. Now, uh, here's what we like. When we say that we like a particular vegetable, we have to understand that it starts a whole lot smaller than that vegetable, right? Everything that's grown starts off as a seed. And now think of it this, this way. Even mankind comes from seed, a seed, if you will. Uh, now with this, uh, as we understand and you run into these lineages here in Genesis and throughout the Bible, I want you to pause when you get to them. As we talked about in chapter 10, ask yourself, all right, what is God doing in giving me this lineage? Why does this lineage matter? Uh, where is Christ in this lineage? Or is this a lineage of unrighteous people? Right? Think about when you get into Kings and Chronicles. You ever struggle with it sometimes? You're reading in Kings and Chronicles and you're, you're working through and you're reading it. And it says, and so-and-so was born and, that were, uh, and they started to reign at such and such age and they did evil which was right, uh, in the sight of the Lord. Then the next king comes. They do that which is good. The next king comes. They do that which is evil. Then the next one comes and they do even more than evil. Right? The next one comes and he's finally good again. And right? Do we see this over and over and over again? Why does this matter? Because it is showing us God's redemptive story. It is showing God's redemptive plan ultimately to bring about a true king, ultimately a truer priest, a truer prophet, who is prophet, priest, and king, who is the, not merely just the shepherd, but he is the, the lamb that was slain. And so we find that ultimately the picture of these genealogies are to show us something far greater. So make sure that when we approach them, that we do not waste these things. Because what we find is that ultimately the seed of the gospel is being preached there as the seed of the woman in Genesis 3.15. Now that seed grows and sprouts and becomes what? The, the root of David, right? It becomes Christ the Lord, a God incarnate in the flesh who died and rose again for our sins. We see that the seed is absolutely important because as the seed goes on, we're getting closer and closer to the coming Christ to the promised seed, which has been the focal point ultimately of Genesis thus far. Think of it this way. Chapter 1 and chapter 2, God creates everything without using a seed, but He makes everything that was made to carry a seed. All the plant life, all the animal life, and mankind all have seed to procreate and recreate. Chapter 3, the seed bearers fall. Chapter 3 as well, the promise of the seed comes to that the promise uh, made that the seed of the woman will bring about redemption and will crush the head of the serpent. Chapter 4, the seed of the seed holders, Adam and Eve, falls, murders another one, murders his very own flesh and blood. But then God raises up another seed who will then, uh, as we see in the time of Seth, who will call upon the name of the Lord. Then we find uh, chapter 5, this continued lineage of those who called upon the name of the Lord, this seed after seed who 
trusted in Him. But then we find in chapter 6, there was another seed, a seed of Cain, that we can trace back to chapter 4. And what did they do? They rebelled against God. They rejected God. They lived in sinfulness, idolatry, and immorality. And where God said that their uh, very thoughts and imagination was only evil continuously, and He crushed them and destroyed the world except for eight people. So what do we find with that? One seed is crushed, but another seed is preserved. But coming off the boat, there is still the seed of sin. And it, it sows and it reaps. And ultimately, sin still comes. It wrecks hav- it wreaks a havoc. And what happens is then there is a seed that will be cursed and that will rebel and reject God and His promises. But there is another seed that will be chosen that has called upon the Lord. And it will be through them that the promised seed will come. And now here in chapter 11... 10 through 32, that is what we get to see. So God is fulfilling some wonderful scripture here. Now, as we look here, all of life comes from a seed physically and spiritually. Think of it this way. When you witness, give a track, give a testimony, tell someone the gospel, even something as simple as telling someone that Jesus loves them and died for them. Uh, here's what you're doing. We call it what? Planting seeds. That's right. We don't always get to do the reaping. The Apostle Paul talked about it. He says, well, some plant, some water, but God gives the increase. Ultimately, all, of, all that we're called to do is to go into the world with our bag of seed, the gospel, and to chuck it out to the world, to give the seed, put some water, you know, do the whole thing, do all that we can to make sure that the seed of the gospel goes to all who can hear it so that God will do His work in the hearts of people and that people will come to repentance and faith. That's our job. So seed is important physically and spiritually. We find that uh, the, the job of mankind was to carry physical seed and to uh, populate the, the world. And we find as well that the spiritual seed of faith is to be sown throughout the world so that God would reap a harvest. And what did Jesus say about the harvest? He said, look in the fields for they are white in a harvest. They're ready to be harvested. And what we find is that God still has souls to save in this world today. So we must continue to preach the gospel. We must continue to cast out uh, this seed of the gospel. Now, the importance of the seed cannot be overstated. All are born into the seed or under the seed of Adam, being in him found guilty and sinful before God. All of us are born of the seed of the flesh, aren't we? Right? Regardless of what you might look like, act like, or think, or whatever you were told, you were not hatched. You didn't come from outer space. You might have came from a stork or something. Whatever your mom taught you, I'm not going to have that talk with you. All right, That's not my job. But I can tell you this. You came from a seed, right? Now, the seed of your mother and your father brought together, God formed and fashioned you in your mother's womb, so we find the, the criticalness of this. But notice this. Every one of us that are born are born with what? Two sinful parents, and we have now one sinful nature. That is our only nature. It is sinful. And so we're going to, later on as we grow older, we are going to sin because we are sinners. We are not going to be called sinners because we sin. You see the difference? We're born with a sinful nature, born with a sinful curse, and that is everybody, right? Everybody. Now, as we continue, the promised seed of the woman, Jesus Christ, the God-man, came to die a substitutionary death and resurrection to offer life to those who were dead in sins. At the moment of conviction, repentance, and faith in Christ, each believer is born again into a new seed. We have been born again into the seed of the woman, Jesus Christ. So now, you are no longer, when you are saved, here's the beauty of it, and this is what 
I think this would help out so many Christians in their Christian walk today, in their daily, daily life, to see their union with Christ. The moment you got saved, you were separated from Adam, separate from the old man, separate from who you were, you were crucified with Christ, nevertheless, you live. And what are you now? You are united to Christ. You belong to Him. His death is your death. His life is your life. And finding this union in Christ, what we see is that now we are no longer in Adam, but we are in Christ. 1 Corinthians 15 talks about this. This is why all those who are born in Adam must be born again into Christ. We must be born again. He must be born again. This is what Jesus preached. This is what we still preach today. Because without the new birth, you remain in the seed of Adam. Seed of the flesh. The seed of sinfulness and death and decay and destruction and everlasting destruction. But the moment you are born again, the moment you trust Christ, you are born again and belong to a new seed. The seed of the woman, the seed of Jesus Christ, the seed of faith, the seed of one that has been forgiven, the one that has been made united with Christ and in Christ, to Christ, and with one another in Christ. And ultimately, so that all those who are a part of His seed will one day be with Him forevermore. So we find that the seed is so critical. The continuation as well of a promised seed will be given to not only Abraham, but will continue down the line of Isaac and Jacob. God will provide a miraculous seed to bring about His revelation and redemption to mankind. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob all struggled with fertility. Isn't that incredible? Here, here's what Abraham struggles with. What do we find? We, we read it a little bit ago. Chapter 11, verse 30, But Sarai was barren, she had no child. That's going to be a tough one for them. They're going to take things into their own hands and it's going to cause a whole mess of issues. Nevertheless, what will God do? He will bring about the promised son, the son of promise, Isaac. You know what happens with Isaac? Very similar circumstance. It takes an awful long time for him to bear children as well. You know what happens with Jacob? His favorite wife eventually goes, is, is barren for quite some time. Now we think about this. God promises seed. But He brings about the seed in His own time. And so the whole understanding of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and even our own life is this. You and I see from a human perspective of how we think seed ought to be passed and how we think things ought to go and the smoothness of everything, what we find is that God does what He does in His time, His way, His plan, His purpose. And in this, God is fulfilling His will because He is showing Abram that while you and your wife are physically, literally unable, I am able. And that all life, physical and spiritual, is dependent upon Me. Therefore, you must simply trust me and I'll do the rest. Trust me and I'll take care of everything. That's the hardest part of the Christian life. The easy part about being a Christian is getting saved. We trust Jesus to save us because we know, well, I can't save myself, right? I can't earn it, so I've got to trust Him for salvation. The rest of your life, you are going to struggle with this, and this is why we have to see our union with Christ because it sure helps this battle a lot, is that now we forget that the Bible tells us in Romans 1.17 that the just shall live by faith. What is faith? Well, the, when you got saved, what was faith then? Lord, I can't save me, only you can. 
I lift up my hands, I lift up my heart, I surrender because I got no hope. Either you save me or I'm lost forever. But then the rest of your life is to be lived the same way. Lord, I lift up my hands, I lift up my heart, I lift up my home, I lift up everything that I got because I don't got nothing anyways. It's all yours. You do with it as you please. I surrender. That's faith. I depend upon you and I trust you. Lord, I can't do a thing on my own except make a mess. So, Lord, you're going to have to do it. That's faith. That's what we're called to live like. So we're going to see that exemplified in Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob throughout. We're going to find that they fail in it like we do as well. And that gives me hope tonight. We see that God is going to focus His operation upon those individuals who are of His seed of faith and physical lineage pointing to His corporate people. Old Testament, it's going to be the people of Israel ultimately leading to the lineage of Christ. And then in Christ, those who are in Christ, uh, a part of the church, the body and bride of Christ, we see this continued lineage of the seed of faith. Furthermore, at the coming day of the consummation, the two seeds will be divided and judged accordingly. Those who remained in unbelief in the seed of Adam, those who went the way of Cain, as we see the Bible talk about in Genesis, will be condemned to everlasting destruction. On the other side, those who were saved by grace through faith in Christ, who make up the seed of faith, will be ushered into everlasting life in the eternal city to enjoy the presence of Jesus, the redeeming Lamb. So here's what we find. All of human history, all of redemptive history, has two seeds. The seed of the flesh... The seed of faith. Another way of putting it. Uh, the seed of the serpent or the seed of the woman. Who's going to be who? Jesus Christ, the promised one. And what else do we find? The whole Old Testament. Here's the key to understand the whole Old Testament. You ready? This is it. This is the Old Testament right here. Waiting for that promised seed. That's it. That's the whole Old Testament. Those who by faith wait for the promises of God. And that's why by faith it is accounted, imputed unto them righteousness, simply because they trusted and waited upon the Lord. Now this idea and understanding of unbelief as we dealt with here, and when we'll wrap this up tonight, we'll stop here. Here's what we see. Eventually, these two seeds are going to meet. We're going to be at the same place for a minute. There's going to be one group over here, one group over there, if you will. Those of us who are in Christ, the born-again seed, if you will, the seed of faith, will go to the Bema seat. The Bema seat is a place of judgment as well, but it is a place of reward for the believer. It is not a place of condemnation. Praise God for that, right? But on the other side, there's going to be this, is what's called the great white throne judgment. That is where all those who are in the seed of the serpent, who went the way of Cain, who went the way of Nimrod, were rebellion, rejecting the gospel and unbelief, the way of the flesh, the seed of the flesh, if you will, they will stand there and here's their judgment. Are you in the Lamb's book of life? Nope. And they will face everlasting destruction and torment where there will be weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. But all those who are part of the seed who are in Christ will be ushered in to be with Him forevermore. And why do we end it with that way? Because it sounds so somber. Well, the reality is this. It is somber. It is both somber and sobering to think of the reality that if you are saved tonight, you are saved not by any works that you have done, but by the mercy of God. What we find is that ultimately, in the grand scheme of all things, is that God is gathering His seed together for a great harvest 
where he will take the chaff away and burn it up with everlasting destruction. That's those on that side, if you will. That's those at the great white throne. That's the chaff. You know what the chaff is? It's the stuff that grew that wasn't worth nothing. Right? It was useless. Unusable. But then, what does he gather? And usher into his eternal city forever. He gathers up the fruit of his labor. That he gave the increase by his grace and by his mercy. We simply are a part of that because we trusted in Him, not in our works, but only in His. So the reason why we bring all that tonight is when we look at this, we see that God puts this passage in here for a reason to show. Though the world has gone astray again, and I have every right to destroy them, I will bring about my promised seed to redeem. I will continue to reveal myself my word, my will, and my work to man, even though man is sinful, even though his days are few, even though his mind is fickle and his heart is wandering, and I, through man, will bring about my Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will gather together a seed, who will gather together a people, who He will redeem by His precious blood. So tonight, when we think about this tonight, and we close... May we not look at this passage and go, these hard-to-pronounce names don't mean nothing. Matter of fact, what we ought to see is, boy, these things matter. God's name matters and leading through these individuals to bring us to the name that is above every name. And that is Jesus Christ Himself. Let's pray. Lord, we love You. We want to thank You for this tonight. We're grateful that we could look to Your Word, study it. Lord, help us tonight to understand it, to receive it by faith, to see the great things that You're doing. Uh, Lord, here in this passage to bring about redemption, to continue to reveal Yourself to, to us as mankind, ultimately to Abram and Isaac and Jacob and all the way down the lineage to, to have all the ultimate revealer, Jesus Christ, the, the Word made flesh. Uh, Father, we ask that tonight that we would uh, receive Your Word and that we would meditate upon it this week, that we would cast out the seed of the Gospel, that we would be used of You for Your honor and for Your glory. Lord, go with us now. Keep us safe when we meet again. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Y'all have a blessed night, and we will see you guys Sunday morning.